Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Paddy. Welcome to Invasion of the Potty Snatchers. We were originally called Sunday Cinema Club, but... About 30 different people have that name, so... Yeah, so Invasion of the Potty Snatchers is better anyway, because it's like, better? Better? More movie-like? Yeah, I think so. I think it's good. I think it's good. It's good. Okay, so what are we watching today? Today we're watching Psycho from 1960, the Hitchcock film starring Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles and Janet Leigh. This is coming at a point in Hitchcock's career where he's massively successful. Why has he chosen to make what's essentially a low-budget movie at this point? It's complicated to think, but essentially he's been building up his reputation throughout the 50s as a big-budget, glossy entertainment director. That's his shtick. You know exactly what you're going to get when you see a Hitchcock film. Big stars, big locations, thrills and suspense. For example, the film he made just before was North by Northwest, which is huge. And very entertaining, very easy to watch, crowd-pleaser. Yeah, big budget and lots of box office. Exactly. Hitchcock also likes to experiment, push the boundaries with his production design, his cinematic techniques and his storytelling, whether that's actually the way he tells a story or what he's telling. So Trouble with Harry is a black comedy about a body that's this corpse and, you know, it's trying to dispose of it. There's lots of different things in movies that interested or rather, there's lots of different aspects to a story that interested Hitchcock. And very often he'd make a film with just one sequence in mind that, that was key to him to making the film. And I think with Psycho, it's the shower sequence. By the way, there will be spoilers ahead. <laughs> I think I think we're okay. The film's over it's 64 old. years old. Yeah, It could basically get a bus pass next year. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're looking at a film where he's gone to the Paramount executives and said, hi, I want to make a film about um, this kid who kills women. And how did they feel about that, do you reckon? I don't think they enjoyed that very much. (laughs) (laughs) I think they thought, what's gone wrong in your head, Hitchcock? Well, yeah, and also we're still under the Hayes Code, so the dealing with um, a murderer must be very difficult as well. Yeah, because the way the story pivots is that you're following the heroine through a suspenseful story but in effect, she meets this lonely motel owner and seems to make a decision. I'm going to have a nice shower, good night's sleep, turn around and go home. Yep. That's kind of the end of the story, except... Except then that's the pivotal scene of the whole oh, film. The shower scene. The shower scene. And then we're following Norman, who's the murderer. What you get is a is an hour then of suspense because people are trying to find out what's happened to Marion Crane, Janet Lee's character. But we know there's a murderer on the loose. So we're scared for everybody all the time because we don't know who it is. And the whole shower sequence, which we'll talk about later, is so violent, so different to anything that's come before. Mm. I mean, it's a very influential film, but it's very unlike anything he's made before, that anybody has made before. Well, it's also quite different in the way that it chooses to murder the leading character. I mean, Janet Leigh's the big star, right? Exactly, yeah. She's a huge star at the time, married to Tony Curtis... She's just been in Touch of Evil and The Vikings. Huge films. So killing the star off early in the film, relatively early in the film, is is a dramatic choice that really makes the film change direction. It really signals that change in direction as well. It's a very bold decision to make because now the audience is completely lost. Well, what's going on? Is it about the money? No. He throws that in the back of the trunk of the car. We'll get into... 
the, all the filmmaking techniques in a bit, but I'm interested in what happens to... Why, why does Perkins get cast? Why does Janet Lee get cast? And what happens to them afterwards? I think Anthony Perkins is, is one of the handsome leading men of the time. Huge, broad-shouldered, great thin. He's one of a bunch of up-and-coming actors. He's been in quite a few films. He's the handsome leading man. But he's not the macho leading handsome no, man. No, he's got the sensitivity... He's um, a very articulate person. He's got a boyish sense around him as well. And that sense of innocence, I think, is what Hitchcock is looking at. Janet Lee is a very big star at this time. She's married to Tony Curtis. She has been in a number of musicals and things. She's right at the pinnacle of the career. A bit as we discussed in The Maltese Falcon, though, she's now about 35 years of age. And this is like a key period for beautiful women cast in movies where Hollywood tends to discard them. She's not worked with Hitchcock before and obviously if Hitchcock calls you jump. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's the big star director. He's the big name of the time. Yeah. Would, so, I mean, is he like Tarantino? Is it Scorsese? He's, he's, he's Spielberg and all of them rolled into one. Mm. There is only Cecil B. DeMille and Hitchcock known to the general public as film directors. So he actually that is, yeah, that is a very good point because it changes after Hitchcock. We get the auteur theory comes in, yeah, yeah, and directors as the stars in themselves because that's not something that happens before. No, not really. I mean, he's done everything he can to push himself. He's got his own TV show. He introduces every segment. He doesn't direct many of them. He introduces them. Does the exit monologue? He does a lot of the advertising for his films. Often feature him. So the psycho advertising is a tour of the house and ends on Vera Miles screaming. But his voiceover—he's as well known to the audiences as Cary Grant. Okay. Maybe that's a little exaggerated, but <laughs> you know what I mean. He's a very identifiable person. If he walked into a restaurant, everybody knows who he was. I mean, it's pure sexism why Janet Lee doesn't go on after this and make more amazing films or more interesting, have more interesting roles. But what happens to Anthony Perkins? Well, Anthony Perkins seems to fall down into a character role-driven career. He's a very erudite person himself, intelligent person, but he seems trapped by the Hollywood system. His good looks aren't enough to keep him going forever. And as you point out, he hasn't got the sort of macho style that's predominant in Hollywood at the time. So he's going on into the 70s, his looks are starting to fade, he's becoming a character actor, and he's typecast as this extraordinary character from Psycho. He's the innocent boy who will pick up the butcher's knife and stab you to death. Good point. He does become this person with the butcher's knife who goes around murdering, and in a way that makes it the first slasher. I mean, I can see a direct link from Psycho via... The European films, the, the Giallo films, yeah, yeah. So there's uh, early, quickly picked up, and in Italy, there's a film made called um, "The Girl Who Knew Too Much," and then there's another one called "Run Psycho Run," and this is a really common and popular thing in European cinema during the '60s. The Giallo, as you say, cheap slasher movies, and it's picked up on perhaps in the '70s by people like Brian De Palma, certainly. Homage, shall we say, rather than rip off Hitchcock's style and insert their own sort of 
voyeuristic tendencies. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's coming from a different place than the ones like um, Toe Hooper and John Carpenter with sure. Chainsaw Massacre and... Um, Halloween. Thank you. <laughs> Had forgotten the name of the biggest slasher movie in the world. Yes, but there is also the sexy the sexy thriller. Um, oh, things like Dress to Kill and so on. Yeah, that sort of develop into the basic instincts of the 90s. And yeah, so yeah, exactly. And that, oh yeah, so there's that other branch of things that it spawns. I think that's really cool that that's, that comes out from here. It's a really significant part of the film's legacy and why it's such an important film is the fact that it spawns these other genres practically. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. There's a lot of voyeuristic tendencies within this film. I don't know, you wanted to pick up on some of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that I think slasher films are about, watching and feeling uncomfortable. And this film really exploits the use of the camera in first-person perspective. So it uses um, a camera as a, as a substitute for the eye, like a first-person view. And we can, for example, in the early part of the film, first shot, Yes. We zoom in from high right into the hotel room so that we're right with Marion and Sam. Yes. Um, and we get really intimately into their lives at this early point. And then the same thing kind of happens as we follow Norman and he's, as he goes through the peephole to creep out at Marion yeah. as she's changing and getting ready in the in the in in her room. It does that a lot. It makes you makes it feel very intimate. And yeah, I mean, there is always somebody watching, isn't there? There's somebody observing you. Could you be being watched right now by somebody else? Uh, and uh, that feeds into like the whole sort of experience we're feeling right now with like uh, security cameras and so on everywhere else, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. Really. Yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of modern films as well that use the new lighter cameras to really get you intimately into that position and heighten the suspense by using a first person. Like, you know, Steadicam in a lot of pictures does that, doesn't it? But you're yeah. right there with the action. You are not just an observer; you're a participant in what's going on. Very much so. Uh, the first, the opening scene of—I mean, it's in a totally different genre—but the opening scene, the the beach invasion in Saving Private Ryan, you are so close into there because of the use of those cameras. How on earth did they manage to do such technical things with the 1960s equipment? Is beyond me. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, but then Hitchcock is a master of design. Nothing was experimented on during the pictures. It was all pre-planning, questions, questions, questions. He builds up the scripts, questions, motives, questions, takes. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? And all the while, he's designing the shots in his head. He makes this picture with his television crew, and it's shot in black and white. That could be reasons of taste as well, because he clearly wants to show blood. Blood is, of course, a no-no under the Hayes Code. It's... It's a whole number of decisions coming in there to make it cheaply, but it lends itself to this idea of watching, observing an object of desire, something you can't have at a remote distance, and putting the audience into that position as well. Should we talk again a bit more about the use of the camera? Because um, there's another classic scene, which probably is one of the second most known ones. The detective comes up the stairs. Yeah. And then we cut to this really high angle, at ultra high angle, to see the murder. I mean, that's a really technically brilliant piece of filmmaking because it's the only way of hiding the identity of the murderer at this point. Yes, when we have no idea who the murderer is at this point. Arbogast has temporarily taken over our interest in the movie of this picture, following what he does. 
we're terrified because we know what happened last time. Yeah, and there's also there's a brilliant uh, another brilliant shot as he's coming up the stairs, which is um, using fake zoom. Yeah, dolly zoom is that what it's called? I think so. Yeah, where they're tracking him and moving the background in and out. That's so clever, uh, and it's really unsettling. Odd thing about that sequence is that Hitchcock reshot it. Saul Bass and his assistant director were actually making that shot whilst uh, Hitchcock was off ill. He came back, viewed the rushes, went, uh-uh, he looks like a murderer coming into the house. I need him to be completely unaware that he's about to be killed. And of course, that's what we see. And it is more, it, it's in some ways a more effective murder than the first one. Well, you say that. However, the shower scene, I mean, it's the key, it's the pivot, it's the purpose of the film. The rest of it, you, you've argued, is just there as dressing so that Hitchcock could make this 45-second sequence. I mean, he spent all week personally shooting this sequence, according to Janet Lee, who was there, rather than Saul Bass's claims that he directed it. This could be a mixture of, like, Saul Bass is involved in the storyboarding. Like as I said, Hitch wants to carefully plan everything. And it's a very tight budget. He can't afford to waste a moment. But he spends a week on this. Yeah, and a week out of, um, I think it was only a 35-day shoot. Yeah. So that's that's like 20% of the film on essentially 45 seconds of... Cut, 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 cut. In, a, in, in an editing sense, <laughs> in the sense that it's stabbing in the sequence. Yes. And it, well, that's quite nice. I like that. The fact that the cuts mirror the cut. Yeah, yeah. okay. Hadn't thought of that. But it's it's... It's an extraordinary sequence because you see no at no point do you see what you think you're seeing. You don't actually see her being stabbed. You get the impression that mm -hmm. she's being stabbed. You you get the impression of nudity as well, and she is dressed practically. Yeah, I mean she's covered up. But this is what sequence obviously he knew he had a lot of problems with the censorship people with, but he passed everything through because a he's Hitchcock. He's the preeminent director of the era, but. Also, he could just say, but you slow it down and you can't see anything. Sure. I read that there's something like 78 setups for 60 cuts, that he's shot everything so we can see nothing and it's very carefully put together. I mean, some of the shots in this are extraordinary, aren't they? Because there's the... The shower head? Yes. Yeah, there's the setup for that. He had to plug... They built the giant shower head. They had to position the camera on an arm and they had to plug up the middle of the shower head so that they didn't get water on the camera. But it looks like you're stood right under the shower. Yeah. It's insane how much detail and work has gone into that. And how much thought he puts into, like, this is the experience I want to get people in. And you see that shot for three seconds. The shower sequence, there is, of course, the other elephant in the room here, which is that Hitchcock originally didn't want music with this sequence. Yeah, and the music is the thing that, I mean, it's the thing that you remember most, in my opinion. Yeah, it's brilliantly put together. It's just strings, just strings, which gives it a really ethereal, haunting, and tense, kind of edgy. It's kind of scratchy as well. Mm. Like all the time, there's like a finger on a, finger on a blackboard. Nails on the blackboard, sort of screechiness. To yeah, yes. absolutely. Bernard Herrmann, he worked with Hitch a few times. I can't remember if this is his first or second time with him. But he creates this soundtrack, and once it's all assembled, Hitchcock shows the film to his closest advisors and everybody, and dislikes it. He doesn't want to put it out. He's decided he'll cut it down. 
make it into one of the episodes of his TV show, which he checked. Okay. It's going to change from a half hour to an hour, so that's fine. And just ride the loss. He rides the loss on several films for more money, so that he never makes. So why not? But Herman convinces him to listen to the sequence with the music, and that's it. It's going to be a motion feature picture, and then they gear up to all the advertising and everything else that he normally does. But it's the music that makes the film. It, that's my memory of it as well. Can we talk about the money that they make? Can we talk about how successful this film is? I mean, Hitchcock's already clearly a very wealthy person before this, but Paramount don't want to make it. He has to make this for under a million dollars. I think the budget in the end is about 800000 It's rumoured that he personally financed it. I don't know if that's true, but he does manage to wangle some kind of percentage of the gross. Yes, and it seems extraordinary, but it could be upwards of 50%, which is <laughs> insane. But certainly he becomes very wealthy off this one picture because it's insanely profitable. It's Not only that, it just takes a huge amount of money and it's on its own. It's the second biggest film, bigger than Spartacus. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's the biggest. It's the second biggest film in 1960. Behind Swiss Family Robinson. Robinson. Mm. Madness. It's So it makes him enough money that he can go on and do... Well, he could do whatever he wanted to, but what happens there? But this is it. He, he is in the position he can make any film he wants, but of course he can't, because nobody can do what they want in Hollywood. He has a couple of failed projects, and then he makes The Birds, which is an intensely difficult shoot because of all the special effects that they have to build and design beforehand and then shoot. Um, you know, all the travelling mats around the birds flying. It's it's incredibly complex. And then it's not exactly a big box office disappointment, but it's certainly a critical disappointment. That hits Hitch very hard. He wanted to make an arty film as a response to his critics and to his own feelings of inadequacy, perhaps. And the fact that here's this film, Psycho, that has done terrifically well, but it kind of breaks some of his own rules about suspense and how things should be. It's, it leans into his vulgar side of wanting to be sort of not, not the showman of suspense, but like this like sudden terror. He then returns to making more traditional for Hitchcock films like Topaz. Like, Torn Curtain. Yeah. But they don't seem to catch his as, as much either. I mean, is it, is it because they're not as good? I think... Partly that's it. But he is, by then, in his mid to late 60s. You get the feeling that he is not at the height of his powers any longer. He is very wealthy. He doesn't need to make films, but he's still driven to make them. And to what extent has public taste changed as well? Because we're seeing a distinctly different um, in marketplace for movies at this point. The, uh, the rising of television massively affects what people like to watch. Yeah, I agree. Episodic TV eats up storylines. So you've seen everything a dozen times. How can you design something that the people haven't seen before? For Hitchcock, it's almost distasteful because people don't expect to see certain things from his films because he's built up this reputation of sophistication. But really, is he that sophisticated in himself? And perhaps it relates to his own feelings about himself. And is Psycho an intensely personal film about voyeurism for him? Could be. It's also picks up on a theme which is quite a misogynistic theme that's quite common in Hitchcock films of women being murdered horribly. Yeah, women in peril. Women in peril, yeah. So um, I think there's much left for us to say. Is it time to watch the film? I think it's time to watch the film and enjoy these 
Jammy Dodgers. Jammy Dodgers is the perfect film to watch with a horror movie. Exactly. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. So that's the film. What did you think? Well, what do we think about Psycho? 60 years on, I'm not sure it still stands up quite as well as it could. I think you're right. I think that there's you need such a lot of context of understanding what it's pushing against to realise how transgressive it is as a film at the time. And, I mean, it's just amazingly transgressive, isn't it? Because it's got so many ideas. It's got the cross-dressing the murders, the the whole, why is Norman doing this? It's just, surely it's just beyond anything that's on screen at the time. At the time, yes, but now we've got so many exciting, brilliantly made thrillers, detective horrors, that kind of thing in the same vein. For instance, Seven or... Silence si- of the Lambs. Absolutely. Where they investigate those serial killers and they really push against what is acceptable to see. Yes. And then there's the also the understanding of what the killer's been through to get to where they are today. Or, you know, there's, I mean, there's indications of it in there, isn't it? Norman has been possibly abused as a child. He's grown up in a, in a poor upbringing uh, by a, possibly a disturbed mother. And it's had a mess, massive effect on his uh, psychology. But... All those kind of ideas are almost too much for the film to cope with. It does feel like there's a lot going on. I mean, I don't know where Hitchcock, in the last scene, we both went, this is awful. With the psychiatrist trying to explain to the audience, well, guys, you've just seen somebody go a bit nuts because the mother is taking over his... Yes, very Freudian interpretation, apart from anything else. Very out of date. But Hitchcock loved Freud. (laughs) Um, You said that he didn't love that scene. No, apparently he actually thought it was a poor scene, talking down to the audience. And yet there is something in filmmaking where people get trapped into having to follow the script and shooting the scenes. So even a director with as much power as Hitchcock is like being told by his assistant director, well, tomorrow is the uh, psychiatrist scene. Yeah. Yeah, when he's called up, all the actors, it's all cast, is all ready to go, you shoot. It's a poor scene. It really does, as you say, it talks down. And it's the first time in the film that they ex- they just focus on exposition. They're explaining what's gone on without actually doing anything. I'm pretty sure that audiences at the time could have made all of those connections without... Someone just standing up and going, well, guys. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a terrible waste and, and takes you away from the final shot of Norman is... As mother. As mother. And the final shot of Norman as psycho the with the overlaid mother over the top of him that's a really frightening end that's a very scary scene i mean if it cut from sam and lila fighting with norman in the basement to the policeman going well i've got to give him a sandwich or her or whatever yeah and they go in and there he is something else altogether i know i know that would have been so much more affecting i think it's those sort of things actually that influence people later on don't forget at the time you're seeing a film in the cinema, you've got to go and pay to see it again. People probably did for Psycho. But then it's not on telly all 
the time. You can't take it out of the DVD library. You can't stream mm. it. So you go forward with your first impressions, your big, strong impressions. Which would have been, I think, that that was a very dramatically affecting film, uh, dramatically intense throughout. There's four key plot elements. Yeah, I think so. So what were you saying? The, the stealing the money, mm-hmm. the shower scene, mm-hmm. murder of Arbogast on the staircase, and then the fruit seller the reveal of Norman yeah, as with the killer. Being able to look back at it, we can see that all of the things are there. There's all the clues that you need, but they are in the same way as in The Sixth Sense. They're hidden. Misdirected. The, they're misdirected. There is so much misdirection. You're trying, He sells a different story the whole way through. Yes. Yeah, all the way through, isn't it? From the outset, well, she's stolen some money, and... The, oh, mother, the mother's doing the murders? That's possibly yeah. what they were trying to say. But we're saying that it doesn't quite stand up. But it's not because of the storytelling, perhaps. Is it because of the storytelling? Is it the acting? Is it because we've seen better? Why does it not quite stand up? It's not quite. I, I recognise that it doesn't, but, but why? why? Yeah, I think there's some a certain amount of stiffness to the the way it's being told. It's still stuck in a 1950s style, isn't it? It's there's there's not much dynamism to the camera movements. And no. there's a little bit more than we've seen, but it's not radically different there. And it's it's hiding these kernels of really weird things. Must have been totally weird for the audience yeah. at the time. Within quite a staged story about, you know, someone stole some money, do you think? Oh, that, yeah. Yes. Okay, I'm yeah. going to the, the murders aside. The, murders, the murdering is a bit less staged, perhaps. Yes. I feel like there's... I think you perhaps lose something because the acting is a, a little uneven. There are some of the performances... A are, bit perfunctory perhaps yes yeah it's not it's, it's not so much yeah I think we were watching it and we felt Vera Miles and Martin Bolson were superb that Anthony Perkins was amazing absolutely and all their scenes playing off each other were incredible but we're in a in a transition between the 40s mannered acting which still carried on through the 50s and to the 70s naturalism yeah and it's definitely on that crossover yeah, there's a there's a lot of things. So there's yeah, it's the acting, isn't it? It's the the cinematography and the 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 techniques they're using, and the acting are all combined to be. We're at a point at which things are transitioning to a more naturalistic view of everything, where there's going to be less censorship. You can actually just tell the story you want us to tell without hiding it and misdirect. Well, I suppose there might be misdirection because you would want the suspense, but. I feel like something like Science and Land just gets into what they want to talk about. And Hitchcock probably wanted to delve more into different things here, but he can only hint at that. Because he's still fighting against the Hayes Code, because he's still fighting against general prudishness within the cinema-going public. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, still, it's, it's an unpleasant story. It's, Let's face it. It's Yeah, it's pretty pretty bleak. So, so we like Psycho. We do like Psycho. We can recognise that it's an important film that sets off a lot of um, new tropes, perhaps, mm-hmm. but new ways of storytelling, new ideas, but it's still a product of its time and of the techniques of the time. And you need so much context to understand why it's transformative, why it's such a big film, rather than an absolute standalone classic like Singing in the Rain, where you just watch it and it's a joy. Exactly, yeah. I mean, do you really stick on Psychonaut and just watch it to enjoy it? If you've never seen it for the first time, there are bits in it where you might be, oh, I'm going to switch over now. I'll just have a look at my phone for 10 minutes yeah. while they go through this. But yes, there are bits where it drags. 
Yeah, I think comparatively early on. I mean, the whole storytelling thing is different now, isn't it? You, yeah, that's right. Okay, so but I think we just summed that up. It's a film that we enjoyed, but beyond the three or four key sequences that have influenced so many people, it is now a historical item almost, isn't it? It's uh, it's not something I could present to my nieces and they'll go, "Wow, that was a fantastic film." I think that's yeah. going to be like. Mm-hmm. But let's say my mum went to see that when she was eighteen years old, and she couldn't take a shower or sleep by herself for a week. You know, <laughs> it absolutely terrified her. <laughs> Yes. Okay, well, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Well, thank you for joining us, and we'll be back again with another episode of Invasion of the Potty Snatchers. See you soon. See you, bye.